0: Continuing with our contemplation of <coughs> the Prajnaparamita-sutra, the chan practice, the contemplation of the mind ground, the turning the mind to the deathless, these are all different ways of talking about this practice. The Cultivation of the third noble truth. It's another way of talking about it. The third noble truth is cessation. Realizing cessation. Not thinking about cessation, but realizing cessation, the ending of birth and death. Tasting. inherent uh, peacefulness. But this is the most profound principle in uh, Buddhist teachings. The Heart Sutra speaks of the ultimate. and So it's challenging. So we need to be very, very patient with ourselves. Uh, in this uh, contemplation this morning, I, I definitely am benefiting from the encouragements of, uh, and explanations and guidelines for practice of Master Shun who we've been referring to throughout these Kuan Yin dharmas, and also uh, the Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha, and his encouragement in both the Theravada and the Mahayana scriptures. In my own uh, practice and contemplation as well. Essentially, the Heart Sutra is looking at the distinction living beings make between existence and emptiness, the sense of there being something or there being nothing. emptiness, the distinction between something and nothing. In appearance, it appears, uh, they appear really different. Through language they really appear different. It is or it isn't, and through language there's all the different dualities. There's night and there's day, and they're different. And there's good and there's bad, and there's different. There's up and there's down and there's different. There's getting bigger and getting smaller. There's uh, samsara and there's nibbana. And most obviously there's, uh, there's something and then there's nothing. In this uh, teaching, the Buddha is pointing out that actually these, these principles, though they might appear to be two, they are in actual, actuality one substance, they're not two. Master Y encourages us to, to contemplate like this, he says, this is an, an analogy. We can come uh, in the early morning uh, to practice. Well, maybe Kitty Charles already rung the bell, but we're keen. This is Chan, after all. We're keen. So we're coming early. And we open the door, and we look in this room. Oh, it's empty. There's nobody here. It's empty. I want to be first, but I also want a cup of tea. So we go quickly make a tup of, cup of tea, and then we, then we look in there, and there's Alex in there. Did Alex destroy the emptiness? Alex is occupying the emptiness, but did the emptiness run off somewhere? So in a sense, this is an analogy, but in a sense you can see that that form, the form of Alex, doesn't obstruct the emptiness. The emptiness does not obstruct the form. Then when Alex leaves the room, we say, oh, it's empty. When Alex or whoever comes in, we say it's full. Well, there is form. So it can be said that uh, emptiness, true emptiness, doesn't obstruct existence. Existence does not obstruct to um, uh, emptiness. Uh, this uh, quite It's just a way of talking, but the Buddha in the Theravada scriptures also encouraged us to reflect like this. He has a, there's a whole vaga. There's a whole section of the Nikaya about emptiness. Ananda was asking him about it. The Buddha said he dwells in emptiness regularly, what's called the Shinyata vihara. Buddha says he dwells there. And then he teaches in these discourses about the the way to enter into emptiness. And he teaches it in in such a tangible way. He teaches it by reflecting on what is present and what is not present. What is not present, he says, is empty of that. For example, um, our experience now is empty. Of our, the contact of our room. It's empty of the contact of being outside looking at the uh, things in Underberg when we were last in Underberg. That's not in the experience. The experience is empty of it. But what the Buddha says is not, what is not empty is what is, we know what is present now. Reflecting on, so the true entryway into emptiness is not a question of trying to get away from existence. It's not trying to get away from contact. It's not some metaphysical, high-blown, theoretical imagining of some, something with nothing. It's a true understanding. We find, uh, discover emptiness right in the midst of contact, right in the midst of form. When we don't understand emptiness, we then separate existence and annihilation. We separate things being and things not being. Existence and emptiness are separate. And it's not a true emptiness. It's a false emptiness. And it's a false existence. When we, when we think things exist, that's birth and death, isn't it? When we, and, what, and what do we take to exist? It's the five kundas, it's the focuses of the grasping mind. That's real, and it's existence, it's me. And we've we've been looking at this. When we take uh, my healthy body as me, then when uh, I've got something weird going on with my ear, so I'm like in a drum now, so it's kind of strange, but if, if I take, no, no, what's going on, what's going on with mine, what's going on with mine? If we take that as mine and my possession, then when the, when the form changes, there's a sense of dislocation. When we believe existence really exists, that's called birth. And in that very moment, we create death, time, rebirth. And similarly, a false emptiness is an emptiness which is just empty, nothing in it. We, 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 we a false emptiness is dead. A false em- emptiness has no consciousness. A false emptiness is, is is still a delusion. In the Prajnaparamita Paramita Sutra, uh, when Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was contemplating the prof- uh, was practicing the profound Prajnaparamita, he illuminated the five skandhas and saw that they're all empty and he crossed beyond all suffering and difficulty so he he took took the heart and contemplating right at what we take to be existence what we take it to be and when we when we started contemplating and leaving aside all the shadows that we take into this moment we're not really here and now Iha as Tenisra was saying yesterday, which is in some translations. It's not in our particular translations. When, when uh, Avalokiteshvara is contemplating, he's contemplating always here. Now, the, when we're not really here, then we, we're lingering after the past. With all sorts of memories anticipating the future based on those memories and those notions, wanting the future, clinging to the present, we're not really here. But when we are here and we see that what appears keeps shifting and changing, then we start to see that the, this present moment is empty of what? It's empty of solidity, the conditions, these khandhas They're empty of permanence. Empty of ultimate reliability. You get peaceful. Have that pleasing feeling. Ah, I've got it. But it changes. And so now our our experience is empty of that pleasant feeling. It's not there. And so we start to see when we contemplate with prajna, with with direct knowing. This is not knowledge. I never heard that before, that in one etymology that prajna is translated as prior to prajna, prior to knowledge. That this is its not putting down knowledge, but the knowledge of memory, the knowledge of I know this, I know that, I'm this way, I'm that way, I'm the best, I'm the worst this is good, this is bad. Prior to that, when we, when we just live through knowledge, through our concepts of life, then existence is existence. And we grasp hold of health, because it's real. And we grasp hold of pleasure, because it's good. And we grasp hold of praise, because that's also good. And what happens? When they collapse, suffering, death, because we don't realize that those very conditions are empty of solidity, empty of reliability, empty of self. We thought it was me. It wasn't. Sometimes, when people see that suffering comes from um, grasping like this, then we go the other extreme. Oh, wow, suffering's coming from, from this body, grasping the body, grasping feelings. Obviously, the end of suffering is when that's gone. And those are the, what's called the extreme emptiness. That's why the Buddha is called the middle way. It's the middle between grasping at existence. Yes! And it keeps collapse- collapsing. Another solution to the problem, which is a false solution, it's a dead end, but the Buddha had to fight, try it out to get there, is the idea well, then you just got to get away from all that. You check out, up and out. That's a kind of emptiness where there's nothing. You don't. There's even states of samadhi where there's no body, no contact, or the contact is so subtle that it seems. Absolutely empty. And there's some whole traditions, some soul philosophies. And we can in- fall into this, that the end of suffering is emptiness. And our notion of emptiness is it's just there's nothing happening. And that's not, that's not a true emptiness. It's a false emptiness. So there's a s- saying. I really like, this is Master Waugh's saying, I love this saying. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. That's an interesting word, wonderful existence. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness. When it's just existence, we grasp and it's suffering. When we want emptiness just to be have nothing in it, we're There's a kind of peace, I guess, but we're cut off. And there's still aversion. We don't want any contact. We still have fallen into this trap, led the way. The trap has been created by the conceptual mind. It really separates the two. It is or it isn't. Make up your mind. But when... When we realize existence is empty of solidity, empty of permanence, empty of self, empty of ultimate satisfaction when we grasp, when one really knows that, it's called wonderful existence. You can approach it another way. I've I've said this one before, but when the bubble is there, there are bubbles in the world. We say it is. Language says it is. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's delicate. It's got rainbow colors. Pop. Some can say, no, it isn't. There's nothing there. And there it is. So it is and it isn't. Don't reach the truth. When we don't understand the power, the creative power, and the destructive power, and the misleading power of the conceptual mind, then we fall into one extreme or the other. It is or it isn't. We grasp or we reject. We grasp or we reject. And then we never really are at home with the true nature of things. So you can't say it is, you can't say it isn't. That's why the middle way is when the conditions are such, when there is grasping, then birth and death come to be. With the arising of grasping, birth and death arise. When grasping ceases, birth and death. Do not arise. With the cease cessation of grasping, birth and death cease. So the Buddha is not saying suffering is. He's not saying it isn't. He's saying it arises and ceases. The Heart Sutra, one translation of the Heart Sutra is Prajnaparamita Sutra, is that prajna, not the intellectual knowing, that knowing is what leads to the separation, leads to existence and me and mine, creating birth and death, and it's not there. The, that direct knowing or the, what Ajahn Sumedho called intuitive knowing, I, I like immediate knowing, is the heart. That could be called our true heart. Our true heart is prajna. Our true heart is wisdom. Our true heart is this diamond, indestructible, undying, luminous, primordial nature, what the Buddha called the deathless. But when we don't understand that, we then take other things to be our true heart. When we grasp at the existence, then we take the body to be me. It's all happening to me, my body. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling terrible. I'm great. That's the center. That's the focus. That's me. Or if we even get some perspective on the body, then we're still taking the thinking mind as our heart. We take that to be the true heart. And then the thinking mind says, no, this is good. This is right, this is wrong. And then we we because the thinking mind is a part of vijnana, manovijnana, it's it's a dualistic consciousness. So it contracts around some condition that it takes to be me. It's still birth and death. Prajna. Before thinking. What's before thinking? The thought comes and the thoughts there are happening now, you hear the sound, and what is after the thought. Before the thought, or before the sound, and after the sound. The knowing is still there. When we're dazzled by existence, then we wonder the sound's there, oh, it's gone. The praise is there, oh, it's empty now, there's nothing there. Nope, there it is. There's the lightning flash. Oh, that's gorgeous. And it's all gone. Nothing happening. Come on, let's have another one. Ah, look at that. And it's gone. Empty. Nothing happening. Nothing happening. Come on. Where's that bliss coming? Nothing happening. Ah, there it is. We so believe it is, it isn't. It is, it isn't. It is, it it isn't. We don't know the principle of emptiness that really the real emptiness dharma is mind. It's knowingness. Space is like the sky. The mind is like the sky, Master Hua says. Is the sky empty? And he says, the sky has room in it for everything. Yes, it's empty, but there's room for everything. The sky doesn't obstruct the earth, the earth doesn't obstruct the sky. The sky doesn't obstruct the clouds, the clouds don't obstruct the sky. True emptiness isn't empty. Existence doesn't really exist. When it exists and we grasp, it, it's called birth and death. When we know the true changing, empty nature of existence, that can be called wonderful existence. So language can't make it. It's a problem with the word like emptiness. Some people think that it means nothing. Wonderful existence is another way of talking about the same principle. When we're caught in is or isn't, then our life is jump-starting all the time. It's coming, going, up and down, up and down. So we practice in this ch'an practice. One is listening. Listening to the sounds purely. Listening and reflecting, that's the gate. First we can even listen outwardly. The sounds come and the sounds go, but does the listening disappear? The sound is there, the sound is gone. The bird sounds there and it's gone. In language it's there and it's gone. Oh, that's a duality. Actually, they're not two. The taste of the sound there and the taste of the sound being gone is one taste. It's one substance. It's knowingness. Eyes open, eyes closed. Eyes open, eyes closed the knowingness, the inner listening, can be aware. Though in language we say the outer world, the inner world, the outer world, the inner world. It's ultimately not two. It's arising and ceasing within this one mind. Listening to the sounds. Starting to get a sense that all the sounds are like guests. They're coming and going. Getting a feeling for the listening as the host. The knowing nature is the host. The prajna nature. The the knowledge part is a guest. You, you, You know that it's daytime. That comes and goes. You know that Jack is cleaning his paws. That knowledge comes and goes. You know that your ear is not feeling right. That comes and goes. But prior, during, and after that particular knowledge, there's still a. ungraspable with language. But there's a prajna. Language, oh, are you talking about something separate? You're, you're you know, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And this language can get you in trouble here. You're talking about something separate. Oh, 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 thought all things are changing. Now you're talking about something not changing. Make up your mind. Kitty wrong. And this is where it's, it's difficult, and this is where analogy sometimes helps. Again, it's only an analogy, but it, it it sometimes can help us see. You can you can look at the sea and talk about the big waves, the small waves, the ferocious waves. The terrifying tidal waves, the billions of little rippling, glittering, soothing waves. You can give names to them, map them, trace when they come, when they go. But there's also that in the sea which is fathomless, measureless, deep. And actually the, they're not two. And actually all those different waves, we call them, and they, they, they sound like separate things, but actually all those waves in reality are of one substance with the, with the depth of the sea. But you can't say they aren't there. But they don't have separate identities. I mean, when the wave, when we go to the beach and we're standing by the beach and the wave crashes ashore, this beautiful, beautiful wave and someone's surfing, when it crashes, they might, but the surfer doesn't break down crying, oh, that wave, it was gorgeous. I was riding it, and then it was just dashed. Oh, God. You know, you just say, no, the wave, it was a wave. There's gone way of talking, but it was nothing really dying. It's all part of one substance. When we don't understand true emptiness or true or wonderful existence, we, we contract around a condition, take it to be real. But actually, the nature, within the nature of form is emptiness. Within the nature of emptiness is form. At first it's helpful. At first it's helpful. When we're so stuck to the world, it's, the Buddha at first, when you're stuck to the world, he encouraged you to see it change. See it as dukkha. See it as burning. See it as not self. So then you let go. Let that thing go. Okay, that's useful. We let go, we discriminate, recognize body, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. We we objectify to a certain extent to get perspective. Then as we let go, we start to feel peace. Ah. But then the thinking mind can still grasp at that peace and make that peace something ultimately different. That's then when we have to start really seeing that the, That the peace is not just getting away from things, the peace is through not grasping. In this practice, we're listening, turning the mind back, reversing the flow—the outflow that's based on the sense that we really are going to capture happiness, capture what our true home is. As we start to suffer from that, we start to then question, turn the mind back, and then the huato, the the. Um, the word that's pointing to what is before the word. Huato literally means before the word. And each of those is only meant to bring us back to the here and now. Even here, as Tanisra says, iha can be a huato, here. Helps us see then the shadows, the true nature of how sounds come and go. Feelings come and go. The breath comes and go. So here, we listen to the sound of here and let the sound dissolve. Ajahn Chah is one of his favorite watos. He didn't call it a wato, but it's, it's a word that brings us back to the true heart. with was ne, not certain. That's his phrase, maineh. When we're starting to get caught up, oh, I'm really getting there, he would just say maineh just a little sound that helps us cast aside that, that, that mark, that characteristic. that just concretizes it. My now, when, we, when we're saying it's like when the weather is bad and we're thinking, oh, this is terrible. He would say, train yourself to say, my now, and look again. You see, it's just feeling. It's just thought. Or when the weather is wonderful, oh, this is wonderful. You say, my now. And start to see that all of these marks, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong, are essentially marks. Let the sound keep taking us back to the listening, the knowing. One of the great uh, stories of a word like this in the Theravada scriptures is the, is the famous story of the murderer, Gulimala. There was a famous murderer, bandit in the time of the Buddha, called Angulimala. He was fierce, had a terrifying reputation. He had a shield, sword, arrows, He lived in forests, and he, he could lay waste to the whole towns. Actually he came from a very noble family, and uh, he went, was having some special training when he was young, and he was so good he's a fantastic athlete. He probably would have been an Olympic champion, fantastic athlete, and he was a smart, but he was so good at everything that his fellow students uh, got jealous, so they made up a rumor and told their teacher, the guru, that this uh, I can't remember what uh, Gulimala's name was before. They told him he was having an affair with his wife. So the teacher got furious. And then when it came uh, to time to the final exam, he, he thought he'd get back, or the final, or whatever it is. I don't know what you'd call it. The teacher says, "Uh, I won't pass you. You won't get your accreditation until you bring me a necklace of a a thousand fingers. And he just, uh, he got so furious. He got so angry. He said, well, I'll show him. I'll do it. He's going to mess with me like that. I'll show him. I'll give it to him. So he just started killing people. And he was such a good athlete, no one, they just couldn't handle him. And it was uh, getting to the point, I mean, he killed hundreds, hundreds of people. And he, he would wear, they call him in because he made a mala out of it. He would uh, take their little, either, I'm not sure if it was the thumb or the little finger, I have to look it up, but he would uh, string them together and wear them around his neck. And it's, at one point, the king, local king, just it was getting so bad he was gathering an army together. Not a few people, he was going to get an army together to go after the guy. On that morning, the Buddha did his Mahakalunika meditation every morning, his great compassion meditation, and he saw that the king was gathering an army. The mother, his mother had heard that the king was gathering an army and he was going to try to stop him, uh, stop her son. So she was going to go out there. And then the Buddha could see that he would end up killing his mother, which is not good. It's not bad enough to kill people, but to kill your mother is a, is a heavy one, uh, karmically. So then the Buddha decides to go there. And so he, he makes his way to the forest where he is. Three times people tried to stop the Buddha and say, Lord, please, it's very dangerous. Angulimala is in there. And the Buddha didn't even answer. He just stayed silent and kept going. Three times people tried to stop him. Then he comes, and Gulimala sees this lone monk coming and thinking, what is this? Usually the whole groups of people come after me. This is just one? And he thought, well, maybe I'll just take... He's got some courage, but I'm going to take this guy's life. And then the... the uh and Gulimalas is used to being able to run down deer. He's even said he could run down a horse. The Buddha is walking at his normal pace, but he's using psychic powers. And Angulimala is running faster and faster and faster and not catching up with him. And the Buddha seems to be walking at a normal pace. Finally, in frustration, he stops and shouts, Stop! And the Buddha says, I have stopped. Why don't you stop? Kulimala's mind is confusing. These guys are supposed to tell the truth and he's still walking. And he's saying he's stopped. And what does he mean? I have stopped. And he's telling me I haven't stopped. So he, he asked the Buddha, tell me, what do you mean? You say you've stopped and you're still walking and you say, why are you saying I should stop when I'm, I have stopped? And the Buddha said, I've stopped completely. I've given up completely harming living beings. And and, and suppose and something happened. He realized he'd met, it linked back into this, this ancient goodness that he had. He's a very capable being. And he threw his armor, he threw his shield, he threw his sword. He realized I've met someone here of real principle, and he he uh, asked for teaching. He actually became a monk. Then the king shows up with his army, and. Uh, saying that he's looking for this bandit. And the Buddha said, what would I tell you if he's now ordained? And uh, oh, he's cruel. He's this, he's that. And uh, well, it, The Buddha said, well, there he is over there. And the king's hair stood on him, supposedly. And the Buddha said, don't worry. No, no, he's, he's fine. So the king acknowledged that. And the the Angulimala starts uh, practicing and making breakthroughs. And um, I believe before the next incident that they told him the scripture that happened, he'd had a breakthrough, a real breakthrough. But that's my opinion. He was on alms round one day and he saw a a woman in childbirth, but the child wouldn't come out. and, And she was just moaning and in agony And he just came back and he just said, there's just too much suffering in this world. He he said to the Buddha, I wish I could help that uh, woman. She's in all this suffering. And the Buddha said to Angulimala, he said, go back and say to that woman, sister, since I was born, I have never purposely taken a breathing being's life. By that truth, may you and the child have peace. Sister, since I was born, I have never purposely taken a breathing being's life. By that truth, may you and the child have peace. And he said, Lord, wouldn't I just be telling one big lie? I've taken the lives of many breathing beings. Then in Gulimala, go and say to the woman, Sister, since I was born, into the noble birth. I have never purposely taken a breathing being's life. Taken a breathing being's life by that truth. May you and the child have peace. Stop. When we stop believing all these Creations of the mind. The continually grasping at condi- conditions, rejecting, crushing conditions, thinking we're going to find peace. That's samsara. Stop is another most wonderful, in fact, it's one of the earliest watos. Stop. Seeing how the mind's creating all this stuff seeing that the thoughts themselves are changing not trustworthy, not self the heart returns and notices its own luminosity in a sense that's our noble birth when we are able to see first the views and opinions, views and opinions that we take to be our true heart when we see that those are just opinions views causing us to run this way run that way, when we stop doing that, stop believing that we We touch a deep root, in a sense we're born again, it's the noble birth. So when uh, Guli Mala said that, since I've been born into the noble birth, he said that to the woman, and then she, that helped ease the birth, that that now to this day they chant that phrase in Thailand and around the world is one of the blessing chants to help uh, women and children in birth, to help them buy this truth. It's called change of lineage. We've taken our thoughts, we've taken our feelings to be who we are. When we start to see that they're coming and going, coming and going, they're not mine, change of lin- lineage when we reconnect with something that's always been here, when we reconnect, we notice it. The depth, the unmoving suchness, within that unmoving suchness, there's conditions, but because we're not grasping at them, those conditions are mysterious and wonderful. That's why it's called wonderful existence. When an awakened one speaks, acts, everything they do is auspicious. It's blessed. It's wonderful. They're they're at ease. They're not moaning and suffering. This true nature of this existence is wonderful. When we don't understand true emptiness, we grasp at existence creating birth and death. When we understand the true nature of things coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. Listening to the sounds, the inner sounds, turning the light back, relinquishing, resting again in our nature. This is the path of nipa-pancha, the path of non-proliferation, the path of prajna, that direct knowing that's before the thought, during the thought, after the thought, before the sound, when the sound is here, and after the sound. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist because true emptiness isn't empty. It is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness.